I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Retailers are obsessed about consumers. They're obsessed about the market. They understand their customers to a level that I don't think many other industries do. Sam Davis is an enigma of a sportsman. Something of a chain-smoking Clark Kent of a character from my youth. He was bespectacled and skinny and English pale. And yet suddenly, at a school sports day, running the fastest first half of an 800-meter race any of us had ever seen. Uh, Unfortunately, he also possesses the world's least resilient knees, and one of them gave out, leaving him to hop most of the way home. And it was another one of those knees that put pay to his football career, thanks to a pre-warm-up injury, which left him with tennis. Unfortunately, we'll never know how good he could have got, because the only invitation to a big match he ever got, at least to my knowledge, was when the bus driver once challenged him to a friendly match. Luckily for the almost certainly more talented kids of today, RCS has been investing heavily in grassroots tennis in South Africa and in building talent development pipelines. Welcome to How to Lend Money to Strangers with Brendan LaGrange. Regan Adams, CEO of RCS and former boss of mine, welcome to the show. I see you've been at RCS for 18 and a half years now and six and a half of those as CEO, but your career obviously started getting your hands a lot dirtier in the literal sense. So tell me, what is your actual technical background and what was your route from there into retail credit? Firstly, Brendan, really great to see you and uh, it was really fun times when we worked together and And when you talk about dirty, it really was dirty because it was the cement business. So I did an undergraduate degree in electrical engineering, actually majoring in light currents, so really electronic engineering, and joined PPC Cement in 1994, which is quite a significant date because that's the date when South Africa really became a democracy. So I didn't just finish my degree in that year. I also stepped into a job in a rural area, predominantly Afrikaans, (laughs) just the year afterwards. It was fun times, as you can imagine. Interesting times. And obviously, your career has charted that period of democracy in South Africa, starting in those sort of very early open days when open probably was a little bit of a generous way of describing things way through to now where you are CEO of RCS. But you went there through the time that we spent together at Capital One. You know, it's an interesting step from uh, cement to to retail credit. So what got you thinking that way and, and what got you to move industries into financial services? What you realize quite quickly is that in engineering, there are kind of two broad streams that you can go into. Either you're going to go into very technical engineering, let's say geeky engineering, or you're going to more engineering management. And the one thing that I told myself is that I really want to be more in the engineering management. And when you talk about engineering management, you talk about budgets, plant maintenance, planning, all these kind of things. And 
to do that effectively, I decided when I was at PPC in Piketburg and clearly didn't have a lot to do. So I decided, well, may as well I study another degree. And I went into studying a commerce degree. But, you know, this would give me the commercial financial background. I also actually, as a result of that, kind of also got involved with a business reengineering project at PPC. Uh, where PPC were looking at all their plants, SAP and Bond just started these ERP systems and PPC was busy implementing Bond across the country. And that actually let me move from Piketburg to Johannesburg, working in all these plants, eventually ending up in PPC Parktown at the head office. And that's really where, after having done that for a little while, I saw this Capital One advertisement and it would be great to try and move into a different kind of industry. And uh, yeah, went for the Capital One opportunity. And the one thing that really struck me in the interview process was they didn't really care about your degree. They didn't really care about what you studied. I mean, what they cared about is, you know, were you numerate, were you analytical, were you a problem solver, which I really enjoyed. And what engineering taught me was a way of thinking, a way of looking at a problem and, and analyzing it and coming up with solutions. So maybe in the engineering space, it was looking at transistors and all sorts of things. But I thought, well, you can do the same thing with interest rates and products. So let's go. And they gave me the opportunity. And like I said, it was great. And you ended up working with people that had a Bachelor of Arts, an engineering degree, a commerce degree, a lawyer's degree, but they were kind of similar in thinking, which, uh, which made for a very interesting space. Capital One was actually in South Africa, it was a joint venture. Um, so it wasn't its own big business. It was a small part of a big bank. But that bank was one of the big four banks in the country. It had at the time close connections to an insurance arm. So you as a young executive going up the ranks there would have had an easy opportunity when you got tired of the credit card space to go to any one of a number of jobs, I'm sure, within that group and had a solid, comfortable career in the, in, in the big corporates. But you decided to go to RCS, which obviously a much smaller, more dynamic player. What was the thinking about that move to step out of the big corporate, the big retail banking world? And to go to, I guess we weren't using the word fintech in those days, but a non-bank lender and now something much more like we recognize as a fintech. Look, I would say that, I mean, there were two things. One that was unique to the job I was in. As you know, and I think one can probably have another podcast about a successful JVs, the joint venture between NetBank and Capital One. It was quite a fascinating joint venture because culturally very different. You had this big bureaucratic corporate in NetBank, and then you, then you had these young guys that were quite nimble, analytical, and dynamic, and made for a very interesting marriage. It was actually, I think, in retrospect, a joint venture that was ahead of its time. So there were definitely dynamics of the joint venture, which I think was challenging. But my kind of decision to go into retail credit was, I mean, you use the word dynamic. When you are in a bank, I think you're more probably focused around the products that the bank extend. But when you when you go into the retail space, really, it's retailers are obsessed about consumers. They're obsessed about the market. They understand their customers to a level that I don't think many other industries do. So I wanted to get into 
retail consumer credit. And of course, relative to where the banks were playing and still actually today are playing in the kind of the higher income segments, retail credit served the lower to middle income consumers, people that really needed credit to improve their lifestyle. You know, this is really where the rubber hit the road. It was the store cards. It was middle market. We're talking here about people that if they didn't have credit, they won't have a fridge, you know, really practical things that could dramatically improve their lifestyle. So I wanted to get more exposure to that retail component. And of course, my my lending, my financial consumer finance background helped me to get into that space. To me, it seems like quite an interesting time in the market. What was that retail lending landscape like? And maybe within RCS, kind of what was your take on the market and what were you looking to achieve there? I would say that RCS in itself was was quite unique. Eventually, the business that actually came about, you know, in that space, like you rightfully pointed out, what retailers realized was that the consumers that they were serving weren't getting access to credit. It wasn't served by the banks because the banks did not understand that consumer segment. They didn't know how to differentiate risk. They didn't know how to understand affordability. They didn't understand them. So I think actually the way RCS was uh, started tells you a little bit about that kind of market in that space. RCS was born out of the Fashini group. And what Fashini historically had is they, they ran their own store cards. They still today, they had their Malcolm's card, the Fashini card, all these cards. And what they thought was, okay, we've got these lending products in, to shop in our own stores. How do we provide the, these same customers with an ability to shop outside of our stores? with other financial service products like personal loans because they weren't getting it. And the the benefit that they had is that they had the underlying spend patterns, behavior, credit risk understanding of these guys based on the store card business that they had. So it was really saying, okay, how do I serve more of the needs of these customers by introducing something like an RCS card that allowed people to spend outside of Fushini stores? and cross-selling kind of personal loans into this base. So I think at that time, to answer your question, a lot of the retailers that were running credit, they knew that there was a lot that they could offer their customers by virtue of the fact that they understood them best. You know, the funny thing, Brendan, is that today you're still sitting in a market in South Africa where store cards are still double the amount of credit cards. Other markets like the UK where you are today and the US that were big store card kind of markets, but over the time were replaced by credit cards. And even if you take Brazil, Brazil was a big store card market. Also, there are credit cards. South Africa seemed to have been, you know, one of those markets where the dynamic has remained. You know, you still have, uh, you know, upwards of 10 to 15 million store cards and only about 5 million unique credit cards. And when you talk to customers, it's quite fascinating how they think about these different products. I mean, that's another podcast all to itself. But back to your question, I think, it was an interesting time where retailers realized to move their product, they need to provide people with access to, to credit and also seeing the broader financial services opportunity in driving other income to their business alongside the retail income they were making. What does it feel like to be a non-bank lender in South Africa now? It was 18 years later. You know, back in the day, it was <laughs> fax machine, very manual filling in of application forms, predominantly done inside a store. The, the regulation was quite primitive. People could really almost charge what they wanted to. You know, the, there's a lot of things that have changed over the years. And, you know, you now operate in a market that has a very sophisticated credit regulation. I think it's kind of mirrored the UK Consumer Credit Act. 
even if you compare South Africa's standard of of lending um, uh, regulation is even more advanced or stricter than some European markets. You know, we've we've got things like affordability calculations. That's in some markets that's only being rolled out now. Now, South Africa has always had the benefit of having a very strong bureau. And I think there's always been a very strong kind of infrastructure to extend lending. But you know, you're in a market now where I guess there, there could still be loan shards that are out there, but certainly in the formerly regulated market, it's it's a lot tighter control. We've got a cap on pricing. You, It's very prescriptive on how you can do things. It's, there's been a lot, of, a lot done to protect the consumer. And of course, as you mentioned, digital has played a massive role. I mean, you're now sitting in a world where Digital just transformed the customer experience. You know, back in the day, people were happy to get credit. Now, people are much smarter. You know, they they want things like loyalty. They want things like rewards. It's not just about the, the access to credit. They've got more choice. So certainly the space um, have become more competitive. The banks are still not there, but certainly a lot more non-bank lenders have come onto the scene. You know, people that are able to service customers quicker, faster, more efficiently than uh, the banks. And of course, if we look now, you've got products like Buy Now, Pay Later that attract specific segments of customers. So I would say that, you know, product structures have evolved over time. The way you extend credit to people through channels, through the distribution, um, the regulation, you know, there's been massive changes in the industry. And, you know, sometimes you think, have more people got access to, to credit? I'm not so sure because I think the lending regulations have been mostly focused on curbing reckless lending and in doing so may have actually pushed some people to the more informal kind of lending areas where you don't have to give a bank statement or a payslip or go through affordability calculations and so on. Let's look a little bit at RCS. In terms of the products you're offering, as you said, your roots are in that retail space, but what does the credit product suite look like? We are predominantly, obviously, in the unsecured lending space. So products are predominantly cards and loans and predominantly cards by virtue of the fact that we're not a bank that's got a current account. So we almost see the, the card as our gateway product. And then once somebody comes through as a card product, you know, we can then cross sell other products to them, whether it be personal loans, whether it be credit cards for specific segments, whether it be insurance products. So our stronghold is in retail. So we would look at the retailer that we want to serve and understand what is the best type of card product for that particular retailer, because we do a lot of white labeling of the products. So we have co-branded cards where the RCS brand is co-branded with the retailer brand. And then we have private label cards where it's just the retailer brand. Or those are typically in environments where the scale of the retail itself is sufficient enough to be able to make the economics work. Whereas in a co-branded kind of a portfolio space, you need the acceptance in the wider RCS network for the economics to work. And that's why it's co-branded. And then we've got our general purpose card, which is the RCS card. I mentioned it before. And this is almost like a credit card, but it's, I would say, a limited utility credit card. Uh, it's like a superstore card. You can't withdraw cash from it, but it's used in close to 30,000 retail environments where you can shop. And then, like I mentioned, we've got lending products. Now, where we've evolved, I would say, in the last kind of five to 10 years is that we don't just serve retailers anymore. You know, we we are deploying our lending products into insurers, for example, 
We do Sunlum's credit card. We do personal loans into the Telesure Holdings database. We partner with Time Bank and we do their credit card. Where there's a need to be financed and there's a customer database there, you know, we are able to deploy a, a relevant and suitable financing product. So that's an area that we will continue to expand in because, you know, you can finance things like solar energy and all those kind of things. So we kind of want to play in that space. So that's the one thing that who we are serving in terms of partnerships. And the other thing is, I would say in the last few years, it's covered as accelerated e-commerce in South Africa and elsewhere. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And we've acquired last year a company called MobiCred that specializes in virtual credit and online credit, and they integrated into all the major online payment gateways, you know, locally, the likes of Take Lots of Publist and so on. So e-commerce, digital commerce, mobile commerce, which you can, you can say is kind of more slanted towards the younger generation. Really, you know, where you are now is you've got this dichotomy where you've got younger segments of customers. They want to consume credit through their mobile, online, digitally. But the, the stronghold of credit is still that older customer of 35 plus that want to have a, a plastic in their hand. They want to come into a store. So it's about how you deploy the right product for that right segment and allowing them to consume it in the manner that they want to. Now, we spoke a bit about access to credit and you're serving that part of the market that was previously left behind. In the old days, when we did that, people were made to put up with difficult processes because they didn't have many other choices. Whereas now I see you're able to get cash into your customers' accounts within 24 hours. So you're able to do both, right? You're able to serve parts of the market that others can't, but to give them that same level of fast turnaround that any customer would expect today. What's your philosophy around that on how you provide access to credit to customers, but how you also provide a service to, to your customers? I think one of the big things that have evolved is the customer experience. I mean, as you know, in the last 10 years, you buzzwords of UX and CX and, and customer journey and all these things. These are all terms that have come to the fore. And I, I think, you know, back in the day, 
power sat with the provider that is deciding whether they want to give you something or not. I think now there's a lot more power sitting with the customer and the consumer and people want to engage with people that give them the best experience, that give them an efficient experience that makes it easy for them. You're still subject to the regulation, the affordability checks, the models, etc. But digital technology have played a massive role in enabling faster turnaround times, really using tech to, to make it easier for customers. You know, on a digital onboarding system now, you can you can put a product in somebody's hands in 10 minutes using you know, APIs to the bureaus, to, to, to fraud tools. Um, you can get their bank statements uploaded, OCR, the technology, do an affordability calculation through robotics, calculate all of this, and, you know, the, the, it's the end of the story, you know. So I think digital technology has, has really transformed the industry in terms of how you, how you lend, how you make it easier, also for people to service their accounts. Our products, you've got mobile apps. There's a lot of stuff you can do through the mobile apps. And so I would say digital te- technology has made it really easier for people. And that doesn't matter on whether you're talking about a low, middle, high income segment. I mean, everybody's benefiting from these from these advances in, in technology. You spoke earlier about access to credit. And like you rightfully say in the past, access meant you pay more and you'll get access. <laughs> you know, the one, one advancement which I think is is one that is still evolving is the use of data and alternative data sources. You know, if you if you think about the bureau, you've got this credit unaware population that's termed thin file population. You know, how do you understand these guys better? And now you've got data sources that you can use, you know, whether it is bank statements, they can go into models. You've heard some crazy things around using social media and credit decisioning and so on. I mean, we've built a model uh, using bank statement information for somebody that it does not have a bureau record, you're able to more effectively assess credit risk. And those are the dynamics that increase the pool of customers that come into fold and then get access to credit. But Regan, it's not just grassroots access to credit opportunities that you're working on. You're also very much involved in grassroots access to tennis opportunities for young South Africans. What is the RCS Rising Star Tennis Initiative? Thank you for asking about that because it's a, it's a very different topic. But it's a very important one, you know. There's the what we do, but there's also the why we do it. And don't tell my shareholders, you know, I don't get excited about making more money. You know, the thing that excites me is using the more money that we make to positively impact the lives of people. You know, and the context that we find ourselves in South Africa, where you've got youth unemployment rate that's that's kind of in the 50s. Um, you know, we, we have a role to play. And I've got a little bit of a saying that says that South Africa must be a better place because RCS is in it. We invest a lot in the communities and we operate. We have a focus on youth and programs like the Rising Star Tennis initiatives that, that, that really take tennis to primary school, secondary school, and also wheelchair tennis is to grow and develop these youth in other skill sets. You know, sport is a great tool to which people can have a, a myriad of skills and characteristic traits that they can develop. So. Our shield, the BNP Paribas, is very much involved in tennis. Uh, you can see in the likes of Roland Garros and so on. So it was just a natural thing for us to also get involved in South Africa, develop grassroots tennis. And the thing that I'm proud of is that we now have close to 50% of tennis participants coming from previously disadvantaged schools. And, and these guys are not just participating. Some of them are really doing very well. And it just shows you that Talent is everywhere and opportunity is not. And what we're trying to do is create those opportunities so that we can unlock some of the talent that is sitting there. So that's that's a specific youth program. 
or youth initiative, but there are also others we involved in the Woodica Peace and Development Initiative. You may know that in the Cape Flats in particular, gang violence is, is shocking. And so we involved with uh, Forrest Whitaker and his foundation in, in training peace ambassadors that come from these Cape Flats environments that go and broker peace with, with gangs and so on. You know, it is startling to think that Cape Town is the most violent city in the world outside of South America. You would never have thought that, but it's only because of this concentrated gang-related violence that's in the Cape Flats. It's great to hear that, well, you guys, but also that you know, globally, big names are, are looking at these and, and finding ways to try and change that paradigm. And obviously, gang violence in particular is a, a difficult one where it's, you know, kids are kind of born into it almost, you know, it's, it's part of growing up. So you really, I guess, have to get them very early to, uh, to try and uh, find other paths. Uh, Regan, if we sort of stick on that for a bit, just to wrap up, obviously, it's not, you know, the easiest time to lend anymore. Interest rates are higher than they were. Risk is higher than it was. What is your sort of thinking as you look forward at the next year or two? I mean, it's all good points that you raise. You know, the interesting thing about COVID is that actually the credit industry, sitting in South Africa, I don't know elsewhere, but there were some people that left the system, you know, because they just couldn't continue to pay and these people were written off. So, so you actually are in a situation where post-COVID, you probably looked at a better and more resilient customer because it's a customer that survived a very difficult period of time where people, you know, had portions of their income taken away and so on on a, on a, on a relative basis, more resilient because the others have kind of left the system. And certainly if I look at our cost of risk performance, even coming out of COVID 2021 last year, it's been quite solid. You know, obviously a lot of lenders in 2020 had had massive challenges with cost of risk. If you look at the banks, the, the bad debts doubled, you know, provisions were, were sky high, but a lot of profit is now driven through a lowering of these, these costs on your, on your income statement. So actually certainly what we're seeing is that customers are a bit more astute. It's a lot more people are managing their spend more effectively, not just frivolously spending. There's been some deleveraging people paying down their facilities. So actually, if I look at the state of the consumer, certainly the ones that we're looking at, you know, I'm not seeing massive stress. Now, obviously, we've had significant increases in interest rates in South Africa, just as the rest of the world and in Europe's gone up. But, you know, South Africa's always had high inflation. You know, it's, you know, Europe's dealing with, there was negative inflation and, and zero. So two or three, or I mean, six or seven, I mean, this is massive. All of a sudden you need to adjust salaries, you need to pay suppliers more and so on. But we've been in an environment where, you know, we've been operating between three and six. Now, yes, it's a little bit about north of six, but, you know, it's not something to the extent where it's something that people cannot deal with. Interest rates have gone up, but it's kind of in line with what it was in 2019. I'm not saying that we're not being impacted. Certainly, you are seeing pockets of distress. But, you know, the other thing about it is that you, you are in an economy where you've got a higher income segment that's more interest rate sensitive, and you've got a middle to low income segment that is more inflation rate sensitive. You know, so um, with interest rates going up, it's really people that have exposure to bonds, to vehicles. And if you look at the percentage of people that own their own vehicle um, or own vehicle finance and own mortgages, you know, that's the minority of people in this country, you know, so it's more an inflation rate kind of impact that people feel. So that's just kind of macro, macro speaking. But in terms of the future, 
we can see that retailers are investing in their online infrastructure, e-commerce. Everyone is really making massive investments in South Africa. As you know, you've got take a lot. A lot of the big retailers are catching up now and, and seeing the benefit of things going in there. And we are supporting a lot of these big retailers in their e-commerce ambitions, their digital commerce ambitions. And then we've got, you know, like I mentioned earlier on, you know, how do we finance other needs that may not be the historic ones? So financing fiber installations, financing solar installations with our load shedding financing inverters, you know. So there are, there are opportunities everywhere. And so we've got the opportunity to deploy our product into more different kind of environments with different partners to different customer segments and to deploy different products in there like virtual credit, credit in the e-commerce space, buy now, pay later, and so on. Regan, thank you so much for your time. If people want to learn more about RCS, learn more about the products you're doing or the various initiatives you're doing in the community, where's a good place for them to go to learn more about the company and kind of follow its story? Thanks. Yes, I mean, you can check out our website, which is rcs.co.za. And then we are quite active on LinkedIn, as as you remarked before. And then our Instagram and Facebook pages, I think that's that's also there where people can see everything that we're doing. Regan, again, thank you so much for your time. It's been great seeing you after all these years. And uh, yeah, long overdue a visit to the Cape. So when I'm uh, down there next, shouldn't be too long. I'll definitely look you up. I look forward to that. Thank you, Brennan. Thank you for having me on the show as well. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Please do look for and follow the show on your favorite podcast platform and share the updates widely on LinkedIn, where lending nerds are found in our largest concentration. Plus, send me a connection request while you're there. This show is written and recorded by myself, Brendan LaGrange, in Brighton, England, and edited by Fina Charlson of FC Productions. Show music is by I Am Wake, and you can find show notes and written transcripts at www howtolendmoneytostrangers.show or just www.htlmts.show and I'll see you again next Thursday. was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 